Welcome to Dangerous Christianity with Dr. Christopher Rodkey, where we explore new ways of being Christian that go against the grain, stands up against the church when it's evil, speaks truth to power, and reclaims the Bible as a radical message of hope, liberation, and justice. Dr. Rodkey is pastor of St. Paul's United Church of Christ in Dallastown, Pennsylvania, and leads the sacred profane community, a post-faith gathering for those seeking to nurture a literate and misfit geeky, sometimes sneaky, as well as a queer-affirming and beer-affirming spirituality. All information mentioned throughout the program is listed in the show notes. And now, please welcome Dr. Christopher Rodney. So Romans 13 in the New Testament is in the news. Um, recently, when Jeffrey Sessions, who is the Attorney General of the United States, referenced the scripture in justifying the policy of separating children from their parents when crossing the border as immigrants. As typical then, the spokespersons from the government then backtracked their official position and then did a halfway compromise, if you've been following the news. I don't want to lecture about immigration necessarily, Um, which I think is a very moral cut and dry issue when it comes to separating parents from children. In fact, I think all partisans right now would agree that that's a wrong practice, unless there's been an official change in policy since I last checked my email. But what I do want to talk about is Romans 13, which is the Bible verse specifically chosen by those who speak for our government to justify what they want to do. In fact, in recent years, I've heard Romans 13 used to make arguments for criminalizing sexual orientation. It's used against the Black Lives Matter movement. It's used against the Occupy Wall Street movement. It's generally made as an argument to keep the status quo the same. As it happens, it doesn't matter what issue it is of the day. There isn't there is an American Christian tradition of always citing Romans 13 to justify the same to never change, to accept the status quo, and most importantly, to submit to authority. I've heard it preached from the pulpit that way many times. But there's also a weird history of Romans 13, and I want to first read um, part of this scripture in question, and then I want to talk about the history of how we got there uh, and uh, and do it in a timely way, because uh, here at church this morning, we have bread and wine, and I'm serving ice cream after church. So let's read Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do what is wrong, you should be afraid, for the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be subject not only because of wrath, but also because of conscience. For the same reason, you must also pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, busy with this this very thing. Pay all what is due to them, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. 
I think it's easy to hear where this is coming from. Obey the law, respect your authorities, pay your taxes. It echoes a little bit from a line that from Jesus that might be more familiar to people. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's, which is to say, pay your taxes. That's in Matthew 22. I think of that every time I write my check to the IRS for my quarterly taxes. If you turn to Matthew 22, starting at verse 15, we will look at this. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him, that is Jesus, in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with the truth and show difference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then what you think. It is lawful. Is it lawful to pay taxes the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of the malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And then he said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? They answered, The emperor's. Then he, Jesus, said to them, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. To hear this line, give to the emperor, give to the Caesar what belongs to the emperor, to Caesar, in context, is that this story we just read happens just after Jesus overturns the money changers' tables, temples outside, tables outside the temples. And Jesus uses these words to respond to the very specific question about the coins being used in the temple to pay temple taxes. In fact, Matthew 22, and again, verses 15 to 22, makes specific reference to the tax paid to the temple in this time, not to the government. The issue was that the priests forbade the image of the emperors or false gods on coins in the temple, so as not only to desecrate the holy space, which is why the money changers were outside the, t- the temple. You brought your money and you had to exchange it to currency that was deemed pure enough to be used inside of the temple. Jesus more or less says, none of this matters. If there's a false idol on your coin of an emperor or a god, it does not matter. The Pharisees show him a coin with an image of the emperor who called himself son of God and demanded to be worshipped as a god. And Jesus says to the emperor, to to the people listening to him, give to the emperor, this guy that claims to be a god, what belongs to him. If you attach praise to placing an image of an emperor on a coin, you're the one placing value on the image of the emperor as a god. Here's the news. The emperor isn't a god. He's powerful. People believe he's a god. People believe he's beyond reproach, but he's not a god. So why give him false power to believe that his image has some kind of negative spiritual power if it were brought into the temple? His power is ultimately nothing in a spiritual sense. The underlying message here is that by demanding money to be changed before entering the temple gives credence to the emperor. It allows his image to control how we approach and how we give thanks to God. We don't need to do that. We don't need to go through the emperor to do that. We don't need to concern ourselves with false gods. That's the point of Jesus saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. In other words, you make him a god by treating him like a god, even if you are regarding him as a god in a negative way or in a false way. So give what is due to Caesar, 
which could be nothing or only what you must so as not to be arrested for tax evasion. If that belongs to him, give it to him. The point is that giving the government over power of religion of the true God is wrong. Religion has everything to do with politics, but politics should have no power over religion, at least ideally in the kingdom of God that we are called to build. I hope you're following me. The point isn't pay your taxes. It's don't allow the worship of the emperor to come in the way of worshiping the true God in yourself because he should have, the emperor should have no power over how you worship or think about God. Now to turn back to Romans 13, we hear at the very beginning of the, of the paragraph, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And if you're following along in your Bible, we're going to skip to verse 5. To, uh, Romans 13, verse 5. Therefore, one, therefore, one must be subject not only because of wrath, but also because of conscience. For the same reason that you also pay taxes for the authorities or God's servants, busy with this very thing. Pay to all what is due them, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. Keeping in mind Jesus' teaching to give to Caesar what is Caesar's or give to the emperor what is the emperor's, we can see here that maybe giving obedience to the government is what Romans 13 is in fact talking about. The question here is who is receiving the taxes and what does Paul mean by the word conscience at the very end of verse 5? Verse 5 says, again, therefore one must be subject not only because of the wrath but also because of conscience. Right before this, Paul talks about doing what is good is the right thing to do. And says in verse 4 that there's a very, very real possibility of being persecuted for your faith. The authorities have power of one form or another. They can kill you. In fact, if you break the law, you are subject to the laws. That's the weird sentence that's in verse 4. Therefore, Paul says in verse 5, following along, you must be subject to the laws by necessity as living under an authority, not only because of wrath, but because of conscience. Wrath can be brought down by religious officials or government officials who at the time worked together, which is how Jesus ended up dying on the cross in a public execution. Why would Paul call them God's servants? I think he's being sarcastic here because everyone believes that they are God's servants, the temple police. The real question is what God and what kind of God we or they are serving. So if you do something bad, you should be punished. In the eyes of those believing that they're following quote-unquote God, and by quote-unquote God, that could mean the emperor, who is in fact an authority over laws, they are acting in a way that might make sense if they are practicing their authority. But Paul is saying something else here. Again, in verse 5, you are su subject not only to wrath, but because of your conscience. Conscience. That's a weird thing to say. This little voice inside your head. If you parse out the grammar here, as I understand it, we're subject to two things, the authorities and our own conscience. Now, that's not how religions worked back then. And that's not even really how religions are supposed to work now. 
Back then, you subscribed to religion because it maintained the social order. You didn't really have much of a choice. The point of religion was to maintenance the social order. It gave very direct patterns of living your life. It kept you from getting killed by those with power sometimes. It was, And it was personally beneficial. You got some kind of reward, not only in this life, but in the next life. And often the material was in this life, and it was material in nature. But that's not what Christianity is, despite what TV preachers say. In fact, it's the opposite of this. Or at least Christianity presents itself in a contrary way of living and thinking as to what was accepted by both the religious and government officials of his time when it came to religion. Paul's saying here, this is, watch this here, you are subject to your conscience, your own clear understanding of right and wrong. And then Paul writes in verse 6 and following, for this reason you pay taxes. And here's the weird line, for the authorities are God's servants busy with this very thing. Again, I think we have this scar sarcasm. The authorities are, quote unquote, God's servants busy with this very thing. And these so-called servants of God are occupied with questions of money and taxes. Verse 7, so let them live and die by this false God. Now, this isn't an easy paragraph to make sense of. What I take from this is that the word conscience, which is here to say, and this is consistent with 1 Peter. If you remember, the summer we worked on that book of 1 Peter together here at St. Paul's. If you're going to be persecuted, do what you have to do. Follow your own conscience. Do what you think is right when faced with the authorities who approach to threaten you with false authority. Because while their authority might be false, the harm they can do to you isn't false. So give them what is theirs. Give honor to whom honor is due, which is left unsaid at the end of verse 7. Give honor to God, but give your taxes to the tax collectors. Hope you're following me here. This Is this not a far cry from what the Bible is being used to justify in our current day and age? Perhaps only if you believe in a God who is ideally doing the things that your government is doing at any given th time as positive, it would make sense. When this phrase was used to justify slavery, it was because they believed that God must have ordained slavery. When it was used to persecute Jews, it was because God gave Christians to persecute Jews. When it was used to deny women's rights, it was because God ordained marriage to have women as a subservient group of people. When it was used to enact genocide on Native Americans, it was because the Christians of that time believed that God ordained the government of our country to eliminate inconvenient persons in the name of national progress, which also happened to be God's progress as they understood it. How in the world do we get from Romans 13 read in context to all of this other stuff that Romans 13 has been connected with over the years? Now, here's the answer, and this is a little bit of a history lesson. It was lost in translation. It was lost purposefully in translation. Now, let's go back in time a little bit. 1611, the King James Bible was introduced. It was the first English translation of the Bible that used a relatively diverse group of scholars in different universities to translate the Bible to have an official Bible for use of a state church. And translation differences mattered when the King of England is also the head of the Church of England. Remember? 
There needed to be an authoritative version that was scholarly, readable, and based on the best versions of the Greek and Hebrew texts they had at the time. The Church of England needed an English Bible as an authoritative Bible. It was also meant to be simple. Now, we look at the King James Version of the Bible as being written in Old English and complicated, but it was meant to be simple. Prior English Bibles before then, and King James Version was not the first English Bible, prior English Bibles that were known and used before then had little margin notes all around them that were presented as authoritative. The new version, the King James Version, didn't take a stand on what footnotes were good or bad. They just kept them off the page so that you only saw the text. It was off the page not to sway the reader or argue against the king in your interpretation. What occurred in the introduction of the King James Bible was a triumph of Western literature. Make no mistake, what would become the foundation of the English language of the future and the most read English Bible still to this day. I grew up in a church that only used the King James Version of the Bible. In fact, where I grew up, no other version of the Bible was the real version. In fact, I always assumed growing up that it was the original version of the Bible written in the King's English. I know adults who have told me that the original Bible was written in English. It has the King James Bible. I'm not saying this to discredit it, but to emphasize how important it is. This King James Bible has become synonymous with what we know and understand as the English language today. But here's the thing. The king was the editor of the King James Version, which is why his name is on it. He didn't translate it, but he oversaw it. And the purpose of the version was to clarify his legal commitment to God as the intermediary between God and the English people, ordained as the by divine right of the king, because that's what they believed back then. And what was given to him was a slightly tinged version of what we read today as Romans 13. The wording's different. Obviously, it's a different translation, but the wording is tinged differently. But the servant of God that we hear in Romans 13, as I read it in the New Revised Standard Version, in the King James Version is translated as minister of God. And the language of subject in verse 5, as in the sub being subject to laws, was clearly used to indicate the relationship between the king and his subjects. Now, while it's not an outright mistranslation, it appears to have been presented in a way that the king would like because the king was the editor of the Bible. And this was an important verse of the Bible because it justified the divine right of kings. And whether it said that or not, you can look it up in the King James Version yourself and compare for yourself. Whether you think that it says that or not, the point is, is that that's how they took it. The point is that the king in the line of kings thereafter used Romans 13 in that translation to justify what was called the divine right of kings. The divine right of kings was the right that kings have over their subjects as if they are sort of standing in for God in the temporal world. The king had to keep himself in check with God, though, because the king answers to no one but God. In fact, this is a theme in the Psalms, the relationship between the king and the, the king and, and the God. This is not something that is entirely outside of the realm of reason, this understanding that the king has a special relationship with God. Now, back then, they were Protestant, but the king was seen as the intermediary between people and God. They saw that actually as a progressive opinion 
because the Pope, the king's counterpart in Catholicism, saw himself as having the ability to speak for God. The king of England would never say that he speaks for God, but instead what the king says and what the king's done does is in the best interest of maintaining right relationships with God. Because if the king fell out of favor with God, the nation would perish. So common folk had a choice to make. Render what was the king's to the king and act on their own conscience. I hope that sounds familiar now. Does that not sound like what we just talked about? So English law and English legal tradition, which is the foundation of our legal culture in our country, in the United States, holds a basic precept of this idea of the divine right of kings, which is that you have to obey the government out of a love for God, whether it's right or wrong. That's the way Romans 13 has been used throughout English history. And in American history, when it involves the oppression or the suppression of people. Now, before anyone accused me of trashing the United States as a nation on the Sunday before July 4th, which is this coming Wednesday, let me throw this out there. To read Romans 13 in the way I'm suggesting, that it isn't about keeping or maintaining the order, is actually consistent with how our country's founding fathers understood this notion. In fact, this was one of the entire points that the American founding fathers had in their break with the king. In Thomas Paine's Common Sense, Thomas Paine takes up the issue of the divine right of kings and concludes that the idea has more or less given the legal and moral grounds to be a tyrant. These are his words, Paine's word. In England, a king hath little more to do that make war and give away property, which in plain terms is to keep people poor while convincing them that they're all on the same side. That's sarcasm. A pretty business indeed for a man to be allowed 800,000 sterling a year, that is the king, and then worshipped for taking so much from the people as if they were getting a bargain. Of more worth is one honest man to society and in the sight of God than all the crowned ruffians, that is criminals, that ever lived. See what I'm saying here? The whole point of how Romans 13 has been received to us today has simply been to justify things that are unjustifiable, to protect the power of the powerful, to trick the powerless into thinking that they are better off for being tricked. In the final version of the Declaration of Independence, which was toned down significantly from its original version, uh, composed and assembled by Thomas Jefferson and then edited by Benjamin Franklin, the entire point of the document of the Declaration of Independence was to say that the laws of nature, capital L, capital N, law of nature, and nature's, capital N, nature's God, suggest that all men are created equal. Now, today we hear this with patriarchal censors up. Yes, they meant men. But this was meant to be an insult to the king. And then the Declaration of Independence tore into the king about how his divine right and foundation of law is tyranny because the king violates the law of nature. That trickle-down power pyramid structures never worked in history. Rather, the power of people united together is more powerful than any false belief in a divine right of kings. I don't know about you, but I had to memorize 
the beginning of the Declaration of Independence in elementary school. It's pretty condemning to the king. It's the second half of the Declaration of Independence we don't always read. And if you read it, it says in the second half that the history of the King of England is the history of oppression and abuse of power. To stand up to the king is to stand up for candid facts. The king rejects morality of a higher power or of a conscience. Remember that word? The king obstructs justice and neglects basic performances of government when it is inconvenient. The king, now this is a direct quote. I'm not paraphrasing here. The king has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people. That is the colonies, the colonists in the colonies, and has not given them due process or representation. The king confuses real matters of justice with legal roadblocks and posturing. The king has refused the proper election and operation of a representative government. And this is true too. The king has obstructed the laws for naturalization of foreigners. Exact words. The king creates judges beholden only to himself, creates new structures of government in the bureaucracy, recruited new officers to harass the people. The king has sought to render the military to be independent and superior to civil power. The king has cut off trade with the world and the king has deported people to stand in trial in illegal courts. The king has incited domestic insurrections among the people. The history has a way of being funny, doesn't it? And that those who claim to understand it and not want to repeat it are saying it simply to assure us that we don't need to read it ourselves. Like when every Black History Month comes along and predominantly white schools parade Martin Luther King Jr.'s statement to judge a man not by the color of his skin, but by his character when it's convenient to ignore the privilege of white skin to assume to be the ultimate judge of what we mean by quote-unquote character. Or we conveniently forget that in the Declaration of Independence is ratified dehumanization of Native Americans or American Indians while cheering for football teams that dehumanize the same peoples in our nation's capital. The Declaration of Independence was unanimously signed on July 4th, 1776. We all learned this. The question opposed to us today is whether we learn from the mistakes of the past or choose to be ignorant of them and be selective in our understanding of history that we claim to be learning from. And also whether we will accept and adopt the very nature of what it means to be an American. I believe we are empowered to be free in Christ. The freedoms we have in this country, in the United States, make this easier to do because we have freedom of worship. Throughout the country today will be patriotic songs preached in pulpits in many different kinds of church about the kinds of freedom given to us in Christ. And there's nothing wrong, in my view, with patriotism. My challenge is that we take a moment from fireworks and from cookouts and from days of relaxation and rest for many of us, to ask, what does it really mean to be an American? What does it really mean to be an American Christian? And as Christians, how can being American lead us to be better Christians? Or as Christians, what would it mean to make a better 
America? For some, the answer is America first. America is first. We have a political movement today called America first. This is a fundamental blasphemy. Make no mistake. This is heresy in the most heretical means possible. Because Christ and the love and freedom offered by Christ is the hope of the world. America is not the hope of the world. But America is, I believe, an important step into building the kingdom of God where the tears are wiped away. And not just white tears, but the tears of the oppressed especially. If America is a building block for the future kingdom, we need to ask ourselves, do we arrive at a just and equitable future by using the freedom offered to us spiritually by Christ and legally by America to limit and delimit the freedom of other people? I think it's easy to see here, hopefully, that the use of Romans 13 by rulers even today as a way of justifying the status quo is not only contrary to what Paul meant in writing it, but what Romans 13 is often argued to mean by those with power is precisely the one of the main things American founders were rebelling against, namely the divine right of kings. So imagine with me for a moment what the Christian vision of the future is, where every person is equally treated as a child of God, where there will be more than enough food and water, where justice beyond our comprehension of justice is realized, where tears are wiped away. Imagine the hope of a Christian future and how we are in fact all building blocks in this kingdom being built with the labor of ourselves, the sacrifice of our bodies, and the expansion of the love of others. This July 4th is an opportunity to ask ourselves personally, where each one of us fits into this larger vision that is the ultimate Christian vision. When Jesus says to us at the very end of the Bible, verily I am coming soon, are we now ready to stand up for Jesus and say, I'm ready? Or are we choosing to stand up to Jesus? Thank you for listening to Dangerous Christianity. For more information about how to get involved in the movement, how to contact Dr. Christopher Rodkey, or where to find information regarding his preaching itinerary, publications, or how to make a contribution to his ministry, please refer to the listed show notes. Dr. Rodkey, again, would like to thank all of his listeners for continuously supporting and tuning into his work and message. Thank you.